Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. We've assembled a group of experts from Cleary Gottlieb's market-leading, award-winning antitrust practice who are going to guide us through the major events in their jurisdictions and the things they're looking forward to in 2024. So let's start in Brussels, and I'd like to turn to a veteran of the Brussels scene, Antoine Van Clare. We began the year, Antoine, with Commissioner Verstaer. We end with Commissioner Verstaer, but in between, of course, we had Didier Reinder while she was competing for another job. Antoine, it's been a fascinating time in European antitrust enforcement. Tell us the major events of 2023 and what you're looking forward to in 2024. So, uh, Nick, as you just mentioned, the first the first new thing will be Mrs. Vestager's return to uh, the Commission after an interruption of a little bit more than three four months. Um, it is going to be the end of her mandate, so she will basically have only eleven months to finish up what she started doing. Commentators think that there is. Now, only very little chance that she would be reappointed by the Danish government for a number of reasons for a further mandate. So this would be really the end of her uh, role as competition commissioner in Brussels. Uh, and she will be confronted for the end of her mandate by a number of very important headwinds. So, you know, in particular, the promoters of active industrial policy uh, and of more protectionism, in particular in respect of, for example, Chinese investments uh, in Europe, are now making the headlines. Free market promoters are, are really on the back foot. This, this general atmosphere is having an influence as we speak, I think, on, on competition policy, in particular in the state aid area, where the Commission has been remarkably flexible. You know, it has basically continued to accept policies instituted during the COVID pandemic, and it has generally been extremely liberal with large member states in particular, protecting their key industries with, with subsidies. Well, whether that will continue is, is difficult to say, but there's a good chance, I would think, that Mrs. Vestager will be forced to, to you know, accept the situation as it has developed in the state aid area, at least. I think that, generally speaking, the main focus her enforcement policy is also going to remain the same. The people around her are also staying on, most of them. Uh, and I think that, for example, the focus on the IT industry is going to remain pretty much, uh, you know, her priority for for the year to come. Uh, this will take a new turn because there are new regulations in place, in particular the DMA and, D and DG Comp will be in charge of applying these new regulations. So I think that is certainly one of the major trends. 
You know, if you look at the three other main areas of competition law, cartels, abuses of dominance, and merger control, I think what you can probably say is that we will see small revival of cartel cases, which had almost disappeared from the scene, uh, in particular during the COVID years. I think there are two reasons for that. One of them is that the Commission has put in place new instruments, in particular the whistleblower procedure, procedure which apparently is, is uh, having some success. So individuals being able to report on cartel violations. And the second reason why I think we're going to see a revival of cartel cases is that the Commission is really looking at new areas of enforcement. For me, the prime example is uh, labor markets. Uh, the Commission is clearly trying to follow suit on, for example, what the uh, the U.S. agencies are doing. It is clearly trying to target um, behaviors and practices which were not very high on, on, on the priority lists, such as non-solicitation clauses, uh, agreements on wages, obviously, and no poach agreements. And it has already started to, to open cases. One of them, uh, which is rather interesting, in in the uh, luxury area where uh, in addition to going after retrade price maintenance which is a traditional area of enforcement the commission is now looking also at no poach agreements to see whether that could constitute an infringement of of cartel rules if you now move to dominance i think that there the enforcement policy will follow the main principles that were already applied during the two Vestager mandates, i.e. going after large IT platforms. And you now have, you know, pretty much all the main GAFA players being in one form or another um, uh, hit by um, investigations under Article 102. I think we're we're this 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 will certainly this will certainly continue to being to to be a main area of, of enforcement. Finally, if you look at mergers, what I find interesting is that Mrs. Vestiger will find pretty much a record number of very complex phase two cases. Uh, probably on the top of the list of those cases, I would. I would, you know, think of the uh, the transports and the um, the airline area in particular. We've now had uh, the Korean Airlines Asiana case, very complex case with uh, actually only four routes being caught essentially. So the uh, the, the airline routes between Europe and and Korea, uh, but this is likely to serve as a precedent for you know, Lufthansa, ITA, and a number of other cases. So this is an area where, where we're going to see interesting decisions with very tough remedies. And Korean Airlines, and for example, the new decision in telecoms, 
are going to serve as new benchmarks for a very tough enforcement. I don't think the Commission is going to go as far as DOJ or FTC or even the CMA in, you know, making noises about not accepting remedies anymore in complicated cases, at least uh, as, as, as a normal instrument for merger control. But I, I, my bet would be that uh, remedies and enforcement of remedies is going to be much tougher than in the past. Thank you very much, Antoine. Let's stay in Brussels and focus just on mergers. I'd like to turn to one of our newest partners, Anita Magrana Oliver. Anita, tell us what's been happening in merger control in Brussels specifically, and what are you looking forward to in 2024? Thank you, Nick. So this year, EU merger control has witnessed a number of important developments. Perhaps the most significant one is the Commission's use of Article 22 of the EU merger regulation to take jurisdiction over transactions that, that do not meet national merger control thresholds. Since Illumina Grail, the Commission has accepted two referrals of transactions that were not reportable, Qualcomm Autotox and EEX Nasdaq Power. Thus, for now, contrary to some initial concerns, the Commission's policy shift has not resulted in a significant number of transactions being caught. When we look at the type of transactions being referred, a few points stand out. First, the Commission has not limited referrals to the pharma and tech sectors, as it had period in the guidance paper, because the last referral concerned the financial sector. Second, the Commission doesn't seem to have targeted only transactions involving a new entrance with a still limited turnover or a particularly important innovator. In fact, in all three referrals, the common denominator was rather that the transaction involved a key input or technology for other industries. The second important development in the Commission is the Commission continued close scrutiny of non-horizontal transactions, in particular in the pharma and tech sectors. As you know, in 2022, the Commission prohibited for the very first time a transaction solely on the basis of vertical concerns with Illumina Grail. This year, the Commission prohibited another transaction for purely non-horizontal concerns, booking e-travel. This case is also the first one where the Commission has pursued an ecosystem theory of harm. The theory is not based on foreclosure as set out in the non-horizontal merger guidelines. Instead, it posits that any increment of traffic would reinforce network effects, increase barriers to entry and expansion in the market where booking is allegedly dominant, and this in turn would impair rivals' ability to compete. In addition to prohibition decisions, the Commission scrutinized and imposed remedies to address non-horizontal concerns in a number of other cases, such as Microsoft Activision and Broadcom DM1. All these decisions evidence, first, the Commission's more assertive approach to non-horizontal mergers, and second, a less permissive approach towards remedies, which were rejected in both prohibition cases. The third most significant development is a continued cooperation of the Commission with other agencies which, however, has not avoided differences to emerge, in particular with the CMA. It's difficult to discern a clear pattern as between the Commission and the CMA, because as we've seen in some instances, have been like the decisions and underlying analysis have been consistent. In others, they have diverged. One point to note, though, is that the CMA decision to overturn its prohibition of Microsoft Activision 
and the acceptance of behavioral remedies suggest that there may be fewer instances of inconsistent outcomes in the coming years. Now, what to watch out for in 2024? Well, if there were only one thing to look at in 2024, it would be the Court of Justice judgment on Article 22, which is expected to be issued toward the end or the second half of the year. The judgment will tell us whether the Court of Justice will uphold the Commission's policy shift, and in case of a favorable outcome to the Commission, we'll have to see whether this will prompt the Commission to refer more or to accept more referrals of transactions that it has so far. Thanks, Anita. The other big story, of course, in Brussels has been the Digital Markets Act, big tech and regulation. Let's turn again to one of our newest partners, Connor Optebeek-Wilson. Connor, so what's been going on this year and what are you looking forward to next year? Thank you, Nick. Maybe just a, a word of fair warning to your listeners before we get into it. If you're bored of hearing about the Digital Markets Act, you're really out of luck because we're going to be talking about it quite a lot over the next couple of minutes. And to give immediate credibility to this warning, I think the number one highlight for 2023 is unavoidably the Commission's designation on September 6 of the six companies that will be subject to the DMA. This decision, which marks the first major step in enforcing the Digital Markets Act, confirmed that Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Meta, and ByteDance will be in scope of the rules. While Meta and Apple have appealed this outcome, they're appealing the termination of the specific services that are in scope and not the overall application of the law. It's only ByteDance that's appealed the designation in full. Since the DMA is likely to create many of the headlines in this space over the coming years, this announcement as to the law's scope has set the scene for many discussions to come. A second theme for 2023 is the enforcement activity of member state authorities. National competition authorities have continued to bring cases throughout the year to take issue with conduct that occurs throughout the EU. You can see this in a number of pharma cases, but probably most centrally, you see it in a range of tech inquiries uh, that started or ended in 2023 in Germany, in Italy, in Spain, and elsewhere. These local resolutions create something of a risk of conflicting demands and fragmentation, particularly if they relate to conduct that is occurring throughout the EU. And in this respect, it's been interesting to note that some of these national cases, such as the SEO's resolution of Google on cross-service data usage, they've explicitly linked their resolution to the application of the DMA's rules, which is a way of addressing this potential risk of fragmentation, which is precisely the risk that the DMA is designed to address. The third development is the EC's ad tech antitrust case against Google. The EC has a number of open cases against companies that have now been designated as gatekeepers, but most of them have been open for some time and therefore predate the DMA. The Google ad tech case, however, which relates to perceived conflicts of interest in the ad tech chain is new. And it's interesting also because it features novel theories and it features a startling remedy demand, the divestment of part of Google's ad tech offering. There have been questions as to how the Commission intends to continue to use Article 102 in parallel to the DMA. And if this case is anything to go by, the Commission intends to use it quite aggressively. Looking forward now as to what to watch for in 2024, I think most competition lawyers in Brussels will give you the same answer. It'll therefore be unsurprising to hear that the main 2024 development in enforcement in Brussels is very likely to be the March 7th enforcement of the DMA. 
On that day, the six gatekeepers the EC designated in September will need to have begun complying with the rules set out in Articles 5 and 6 of the law. This is likely to involve some fairly significant changes. Users are going to see new consent controls to govern the flow of personal data. They're going to have access to new tools to port their data from one service to another. And they're going to see new choice screens on a range of popular devices. Now, of course, March 7 is a big milestone date, but it's not the end of the road because companies and compliance will continue to evolve throughout 2024 and beyond, including as their approach to compliance may be informed by the enforcement activity brought by the commission throughout that time. If this is the sort of thing that captures your interest, there is a lot to look forward to. So staying in Brussels, but focusing specifically on Belgian antitrust enforcement, Isabel Rooms, what are the major events of 2023 and what are you looking forward to in 2024? 2023 has been a very active and prominent year for the Belgian Competition Authority, or BCA for short. On the merger front, the authority's analysis and approach was confirmed by the Brussels Market Court on two occasions following a third-party appeal. The first involved the authority's conglomerate analysis in a media deal involving DPG, Rossel and RTL Belgium, and the second concerned the authority's horizontal overlap analysis based on local catchment areas in a retail deal involving Entermarché and 89 Mestach points of sale. Interestingly, in both cases, the complainants had also asked for entry measures. In the media merger, the market court allowed access to underlying survey data, while a similar request by Carrefour for access to documents in the BCA's case file was rejected in the Intermarché Mestach case. As a final note, the BCA became close to adopting its first ever prohibition decision after a detailed and in-depth investigation into a cold cuts merger, before the parties decided to abandon the deal. Cartel and Article 101 TFEU enforcement have also seen an enforcement uptake in Belgium. The BCA adopted its first hybrid cartel settlement decision with a separate infringement decision for the non-settling party. Approved a sustainability initiative aimed at promoting living wages in the banana sector. Agreed an RPM settlement and also issued a statement of objections in two high-profile cases. One concerned the horse betting sector, likely for vertical restrictions, and another deals with the private security sector for minimum pricing, bid rigging, and no poach agreements. The BCA is also assessing highly politicized bid rigging in relation to public tender for press distribution and is investigating an agreement between the four largest banks in Belgium to combine their ATMs into a unified network operated by Batopin. But perhaps the BCA's enforcement of Article 102 TFEU is what stands out the most. Days after the Court of Justice's March 2023 ruling in Towercast, the BCA opened an ex officio investigation into the acquisition by Proximus, one of Belgium's largest telecommunication companies of ADPNet, a broadband supplier that had gone into judicial organization. The BCA requested and obtained various interim measures, effectively requiring Proximus to hold ADPNet separate and maintain its viability pending the BCA's investigation. This investigation was ultimately terminated after Proximus decided to divest ADPNet to a third party. On 2024, 
With a number of interesting and high-profile cases in the pipeline, the BCA should remain firmly on everyone's radar in 2024. Additional enforcement could, for instance, be expected in the banking sector, with a pending investigation into ATM pooling, one closed investigation into alleged non-compete arrangements, and the publication of a suite of recommendations by the BCA to make the Belgian banking sector more competitive. Besides competition law sensu stricto, two other areas are worth watching out for in 2024 in Belgium. First, enforcement of abuses of economic dependency, where the BCA announced the opening of its first investigation with regard to agricultural products, where a fragmented group of farmers face strong and concentrated buyers. And second, while not a competence of the BCA, further guidance is to be awaited on the interpretation and application of Belgium's foreign investment screening mechanism. This regime entered into force in the summer of 2023 with a very broad scope, meaning many non-EU investors may see their deals subject to scrutiny and stand still in Belgium. Thanks, Isabel. So let's go to Paris now. Severine Schramack, when you look back at the year, what are the key events you identify and what are you looking forward to in 2024? Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me today. So a few words on France, maybe to start with three takeaways of 2023. Takeaway number one, what we've seen this year is that the FCA continues to be very vocal under President Curé. So this is the second year President Curé being at the head of the French Competition Authority. He is an economist originally specialized in monetary issues, more than competition, at least before being at the head of the, of the FCA. And one can say he has now fully endorsed his role and is at the forefront of the competition stage. He is intervening very frequently in academic debate. He is speaking very, very often at all conferences, international conferences, more informal conferences, exchanges with competition law practitioners. So he's very open and listening, and that's that's very good. He's also organizing his own conferences, inviting heads of other competition authorities regularly to the FCA to debate to debate with him on what he sees as being the hot topics of the moment. And he's communicating more and more about the FCA actions and his own thoughts. When I say that he's communicating about FCA action, the FCA is generally communicating both high level. And for example, we are discussing 2003, 2004 today, and the FCA has published a roadmap on exactly that, what it will be doing for these two years. But also on individual cases, we've seen the FCA publishing press releases on different stages of its investigation, which it was not doing before. For example, each time there is a downgrade or when the FCA issues an statement of objections now, it issues a press release about it. So more communication and vocal action of the FCA in 2023. Um, key takeaway number two, the FCA is also focused on doing a better use of its resources. So the ECN Plus Directive gave new power to the French Competition Authority, and this new power allows it to better target its resources. The French Competition Authority has not as broad means as the CMA, which we just discussed, for example. So it's looking to use this means very efficiently. And for example, it is now dismissing complaints on the ground of expeditancy, which it could not do before. It has done so in 2023 in the context of pay TV. 
It also uses its power to try to impose heavier sanctions that it did in the past, for example, on trade associations. So the French Competition Authority has now the power to impose very heavy fines on trade associations, while it had capped fines before, and is now investigating trade associations more and more frequently with two investigations on trade associations ongoing right now. Also, as many other authorities did, actually, with the slowdown of leniency application, the FCA has made good use of its downrate power and carried out several downrates in sectors such as tech, retail, red transportation. Maybe third key trend, maybe just a little focus on what the FCA is actually focusing on. Despite the European DMA, clearly digital economy is at the core of the FCA's priority. This has been reflected in opinion issued on cloud computing and on a French new law regulating the digital space, both this year, also on an interim measure case against Meta. This is the fourth case of interim measure of the FCA since it exists. And again, on the online advertising sector, which had been the focus of the European Commission before. The FCA also just today issued a joint declaration with the French authority in charge of data protection to announce its willingness to cooperate with that specialized authority in that field. 2023 is also a year of inflation, and the FCA is focusing on supporting purchasing power with investigation on the B2C sector, advice to the Ministry of Economy in the latter initiative to monitor the prices of the building sector. And maybe a last point, it is also focusing on taking into account issues that have not been the traditional focus of competition law. That's true of environmental issues with a detailed inquiry relating to transportation sector, focusing on environment very much, but also other kind of innovative theory of harms. For example, an ongoing case about a non-poach agreement that the authority is communicating on a lot, and also an ongoing case about issues that would have touched on health protection. So what's next for 2024? As I was saying before, the FCA has, you know, roadmap for 2023, 2024. So it is setting its action in a two-year cycle. So it's likely that the next year is going to be the continuity of what we've saw in 2023, with focus on the digital sector, ecological transition, another new sector study that could be issued in 2024 on charging station for electrical vehicle, and also focus on uh, purchasing power with recently open, very recently open investigation on, on that area. Thanks very much, Severine. Let's go from France to Italy. Matteo Boretta, the principal events of last year and what you're looking forward to in 2024. Thank you very much, Nick. 2023 was a very interesting year in Italy, characterized by significant activism and important developments at the administrative, judicial and legislative level. Let's start with the first point, uh, the traditional public enforcement. Until early April 2023, the Italian authority opened no formal investigations, but things uh, dramatically changed uh, since then, uh, because in, this, in the last seven months, between May and November, the Italian authority opened 15 new investigations. So public enforcement is back and is clearly on the rise. Most of these new cases, 11 out of 15, are Article 102 cases. Concerning Article 101 cases, we register a dramatic reduction in the number, in the total number of cases, also as a result of the material shrinking the number of leniency applications. 
is noteworthy that three out of the four Article 101 cases opened in Italy had been triggered by the new whistleblowing procedure introduced by the authority back in February 2023. The second point I would like to flag is the developments concerning the below threshold mergers. As a reminder, in late 2022, the Italian authority was granted the power under certain conditions to request the notification of mergers below domestic thresholds. In January 2023, the authority adopted a notice providing a guidance on how it intends to apply these new rules. And the authority is now envisaging to release a modified version of this notice, capitalizing on the experience gathered so far. Interestingly, in 2023, the Italian authority requested the notification of three mergers which were below the domestic thresholds. The third topic is a very hot one, it's a procedural one, the time limit to initiate antitrust investigations. In Italy, we have a provision, Article 14 of a law dating back to 1981, concerning administrative fines in general. According to this provision, an administrative authority must notify the parties of its decision to launch proceedings within 90 days from the moment in which it gathers sufficient information on the essential elements of a potential infringement. The provision was considered as not applicable to antitrust proceedings. However, more recently, the Italian Supreme Administrative Court, the Consiglio di Stato, stated that this provision applies to the authority. This development is extremely worrying for the authority, and uh, a number of cases, also very important ones, uh, were, were quashed by the Italian administrative judges on this very procedural ground. This jurisprudence is currently subjudice before the European Court of Justice uh, as a result of uh, a referral from an administrative judge, the Tarlazio, which sits in Rome. What to expect for next year? Well, a robust traditional antitrust enforcement coupled with a considerable increase in private litigation, particularly follow-on actions. Recently, the Italian Cattenburg cartel case has fueled a massive amount of follow-on actions, and many more are expected to come, including collective actions. In this context, interesting new trends are emerging. I will mention one, which is the development of something totally new for Italy, which is the development of third-party litigation funding. I'd like to go to Germany now, turn to Romina Polly. Romina, tell us about the major events of 2023 and what you're looking forward to in 2024. Thank you, Nick. This was a very strong year for the Federal Cartel Office in many respects. In merger control, I would say nothing out of the ordinary with seven phase two proceedings, one leading to a withdrawal of the notification, two conditional clearances uh, in the waste disposal sector, one of them the other in dairy products, three unconditional clearances and one case still pending. Uh, when it comes to hardcore cartel enforcement, uh, the FCO's track record continues to be slow. Only two cases with fines this year, uh, one in roadworks with just one million fines, the other in industry building, a bid rigging case with fines of less than five million. Uh, certainly not what the FCO aspires to. 
but there's a new line of work emerging, uh, the FCO getting involved on cooperations between companies. One such type is sustainability initiatives, uh, where the FCO got involved with animal health and criticized the pricing mechanism forming part of the initiative. And the other is sustainable purchasing of cacao, where the FCO also gave guidance. Other types of cooperation involved the question uh, whether um, it was subject to the merger control rules. Here the FCO dealt with open AI and Microsoft's relationship finding there was no concentration. We find a new peak in abuse of dominance cases in Germany. This is surprising because in Germany this was in the past more for private enforcement. Nonetheless, the FCO opened proceedings against PayPal on a best price uh, kind of uh, mechanism. Uh, later in the year, proceedings were opened against Coca-Cola regarding alleged exclusionary rebates with retailers. And proceedings are pending against utilities on price adjustment clauses prompted by the energy crisis. And last but not least, Deutsche Bahn was ordered to stop certain practices hindering rival mobility app providers. Of course, digital enforcement uh, still remains a priority. Apple was designated under the rules on paramount cross-market power this year. And the Google uh, case on data processing uh, in um, its user terms was amicably resolved with commitments. Um, some may have wished for a controversial outcome of the case because it um, gives rise to a number of interesting questions on overlap uh, with the DMA, which also contains a provision on data abuses. The FCO also targeted services um, that are not covered uh, as core platform services under the DMA. Uh, on substance, the case resembles the uh, Facebook case, but was brought under the rules on paramount cross-market uh, power. So we will have to wait for another case uh, on these interesting questions. Uh, finally, sector inquiries were another focus of the FCO's uh, activity this year with a pending inquiry in fuels. And uh, the FCO issued its final report in uh, non-search online advertising, finding lack of transparency in the ad tech sector. These sector um, inquiries gain importance because since November, the FCO has new powers uh, with a new competition tool, which enables it um, in the aftermath of sector inquiries to find a malfunctioning of competition on certain markets uh, that fall short of an infringement. And on that basis, it can then uh, impose uh, behavioral or structural remedies. And we are all quite curious for next year's what will be the first targets of this new powerful tool. Thank you. So next up is Spain. Enrique Gonzalez-Diaz, has it been a quiet year for Spanish enforcement or a busy year? And what are you looking forward to in 2024? Many thanks, Nick. I will give you an overview of the main competition law developments in Spain in 2023. 
and at the end I will discuss what may come in 2024. I will cover, as you can imagine, developments in legislation, antitrust and mergers. As to the main legislative developments, the Spanish Parliament passed a reform of the Spanish Competition Act to empower the CMNC to conduct investigations and cooperate with the Commission in the context of the Digital Markets Act. It also modified the applicable procedural time limits by extending, in particular, the duration of the merger control second phase from two months to three months and the timing of the antitrust infringement procedures from 18 to 24 months. It also reduced the time limit to deal with simplified mergers from one month to 15 days, and it has eliminated certain unnecessary formalities. Separately, the CMNC approved the criteria that will govern the prohibition to contract with the public sector for companies having participated in a cartel. Previously, the Minister of Finance was the competent authority, but now the CMNC will be competent depending on the case. I would also like to mention that the CMNC published a guide to facilitate the quantification of damages claims. Moving now to antitrust developments, I would like to highlight that the CMNC conducted a number of turn rates in a wide variety of sectors, travel agencies, hairdressing products, electricity, agriculture, rail, and pharmaceuticals. And importantly, it opened investigations in the energy and telecommunications sectors, as well as vis-a-vis -vis companies such as Google for alleged unfair practices affecting Spanish press publications and new agencies. The CMNC closed a complaint against Amazon, Booking and TripAdvisor claiming that they had manipulated reviews distorting competition. The Spanish Competition Authority did identify, however, indications of a possible violation of consumer protection laws and referred the complaint to the Director General for Consumer Affairs. These examples show how competition rules have become more entangled with unfair competition and consumer protection concerns. The CMNC also imposed several sanctions. By way of example, it fined Apple and Amazon with 195 million euro for restricting competition on Amazon's website in Spain by means of the so-called brand gating, as well as advertising and marketing limitation clauses. And as in previous years, the CMNC has continued to be very active in public procurement. For instance, the CMNC fined four companies and six executives for bid-rigging several tenders of the Spanish Ministry of Defense, worth 60 million euro. Turning now to merger control, CMNC had another very active transactional year. It received a total of 69 notifications, of which 61 were authorized in the first phase without commitments, three in first phase with commitments, two in second phase with commitments, and three were withdrawn, two of which in second phase. Of all these cases, I would probably highlight the acquisitions of Smartbox by Wonderbox and Distrisur by Logistic Group. Importantly, the CMNC referred 
Qualcomm's proposed acquisition of Autotalks under Article 22 of the European Merger Control Regulation, following the Illumina Grail uh, decision of the European Commission, uh, this uh, referral was joined by several other member states. As to what we can expect in 2024, and while it is difficult to predict, we can use perhaps the topics discussed during the European Competition Day and the ICN in Barcelona in October 2023 as a guide for what may come in the next year. And surprisingly, these topics included the digital economy, sustainability, the interaction between competition and regulation, and the possible opportunities and risks of artificial intelligence. Some of the antitrust investigations that the CMNC started this year, some of which involve these sectors, will carry on in 2024, so we should follow these cases closely. As ever, 2024 will be a very active and interest, interesting year for competition enforcement in Spain. I look forward to these new developments and to discussing them with you in due course. I'd like to turn now to the UK. It's been another extremely interesting year in merger control. Here to identify the major events of the last year and look forward to the next year, Jackie Holland. Thanks, Nick. So my main developments in UK merger control in 2023 are, firstly, the Microsoft Activision case. This was an extraordinary case with many twists in the tail, so I'll focus on the UK elements. At the end of a phase two investigation, the CMA decided to block Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard, a games developer. This caused controversy internationally as the deal had already been cleared in a number of jurisdictions, including the EU. Microsoft appealed the CMA decision and then a compromise was reached through which Microsoft notified an amended deal to the CMA in a new phase one process designed to address the CMA's remaining concerns about cloud gaming. This was done in the amended deal by a third party, Ubisoft, acquiring Activision's cloud gaming rights outside the EEA instead of Microsoft. This new deal was then cleared by the CMA at phase one with behavioral undertakings in lieu, such as no exclusive licensing to Microsoft and Activision games to be licensed to Ubisoft at the same time as games on consoles and PC platforms. The hot discussion has been, was this a one-off example of legal gymnastics that we will never see again in the UK? Or is this now a new phase three option if you don't like your phase two outcome? The CMA has been very keen to emphasize that it was a one-off situation, but this remains to be seen. Similarly, does this suggest that behavioral remedies are now an option again with the CMA? Or again, was this a one-off case with special circumstances? Secondly, in 2023, I'd say seeds of hope for UK merger control. We have had in the past some very difficult years in UK merger control, with a high proportion of deals referred to phase two being blocked in the last few years. 
In 2023, however, we've seen some seeds of hope in the form of cases where the phase two CMA panel has been prepared to clear the merger unconditionally, such as Broadcom VMware, Viasat, Inmarsat, United EMIS, or even reissued their provisional findings to remove a concern, such as in Hitachi Rail, Thales GTS, and Copart Hill Motors. This has been reflected in the CMA merger outcome statistics, where the phase two unconditional clearance rate for the period April to October 2023 leapt to nearly 60% from only 15% in the previous year. Now, the CMA will tell us that the statistics simply reflect the complexity of the cases in front of them. But my view is that perhaps we are now in a less hostile environment for mergers in the UK than we have been for a few years. In addition, there seem to have been some more constructive cooperation between the CMA and the EC in some cases, with, for example, the same divestment remedy being accepted by both authorities in a few cases. In terms of what to watch out for for 2024, well, there are some very interesting merger cases underway at the CMA and where we can expect decisions in 2024. For example, Vodafone's acquisition of three, a four to three merger of mobile network operators active in the UK is currently in pre-notification. The CMA has also launched an invitation to comment on Microsoft's relationship with OpenAI. And it will be very interesting to see whether the CMA concludes it has jurisdiction over that investment, as well as the substantive analysis. In addition, the CMA is overhauling its procedures for phase two in 2024 to provide more opportunities for the parties to engage directly with the CMA panel decision makers on the substance of the case. This is very welcome and has been the source of complaints for a number of years. The consultation on the draft procedures ends in January, but we expect the CMA to roll these out very quickly in future cases. So overall, I'm feeling optimistic about better engagement with the CMA and a more neutral enforcement environment in the UK, with the CMA listening more closely to the party's arguments and evidence and being willing to change their minds where that's justified. This doesn't mean that all difficult deals will get cleared, of course, in the UK, but it should level the playing field and be a considerable improvement on how we've perceived the situation in recent years. Jackie, thanks very much. One of the other big stories in the UK, of course, has been big tech. And let me turn to Henry Moston. When it comes to UK antitrust and big tech, here are four things to watch out for in 2024. First, the Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill should receive royal assent and come into force in the second half of the year. The bill is designed to introduce a new pro-competitive regime for digital markets for the UK, similar but subtly different to the DMA that is already in force uh, in the EU. In the UK government's words, the regime is intended to proactively shape the behaviour of the most powerful technology firms. And it will do this by giving the UK agency, the Competition and Markets Authority, unprecedented powers to designate firms that should be subject to the rules, to write what those rules should be, and then to enforce the rules. This means that after years of words, we're finally likely to see some action. In 2024, though, this action will remain fairly limited. Uh, the new unit at the CMA, the Dig Digital Markets Unit, will look to designate firms 
as having so-called strategic market status and be subject to the rules if they're perceived to have substantial and entrenched market power. But because these reviews are expected to take up to nine months, we're unlikely to see the actual rules kick in before 2025. In terms of who'll be covered, um, the CMA's past reports in mobile ecosystems and digital advertising suggest that it will focus on designating Google, Apple and Facebook as a first step. Uh, And the Microsoft Activision decision also suggests that the CMA views Microsoft as holding certain strategic advantages. So Microsoft might be in scope too. Second, the CMA has various open conduct investigations with tech companies, for example, Apple's conduct in relation to the distribution of apps on iOS. The CMA may look to try to wrap these up before the new regime comes into force. While antitrust will not end when the digital regime comes in, uh, my expectation is that it will be highly unlikely for the CMA to pursue antitrust cases against SMS firms when it can simply bring an easier case under the new regime. Third, The CMA may look to pursue its stalled market investigation into mobile browsers and cloud gaming. Uh, This investigation has been on hold since Apple challenged that the CMA had brought the investigation without following the proper procedure. Uh, Late last year, the Court of Appeal ruled in the CMA's favour, allowing the CMA's investigation to proceed. Uh, We will, though, likely need to wait to see if the Supreme Court decides to take up the matter and issue a final ruling. Fourth, 2023 will also see various less talked about but still important reforms of UK competition law. The rule on anti-competitive agreements will be amended so it applies to agreements implemented outside the UK but which affect conduct within the UK. Uh, Appeals against interim measures decisions will be determined according to judicial review principles, i.e. illegality, irrationality or procedural unfairness. The CMA will have more powers to conduct interviews to gather evidence and the CMA will have the ability to trial remedies during market investigations. So that's it for antitrust and big tech in the UK in 2024. In a nutshell, it's going to be busy. And finally, in the UK, Paul Stewart, tell us what's been going on in the world of UK litigation in 2023. And what are you looking forward to in 2024? It's been an extremely busy year for competition litigation in the UK driven in large part by the continued growth of our collective actions regime. So that's our UK class action process. There was a very busy week in July where we had three very significant judgments. The first, a Supreme Court judgment in the PACAR case dealing with funding and specifically funding agreements that involve funders taking a share in the damages. And that's a category of funding agreement that is not available for these opt-out collective actions. And the Supreme Court held in PACAR that the prevailing form of uh, litigation funding for class actions was a prohibited category of damages-based agreements. And that caused a huge amount of consternation and difficulty in the community because it seemed as if the funding for those cases might fall away. Uh, There have been two things that have somewhat offset that reaction. The first, the CAT's judgment in the Sony PlayStation class action where the CAT took a very permissive view to uh, litigation funding arrangements and found that the arrangements in that case didn't run afoul of the Supreme Court. And secondly, uh, the government indicating that it intends to legislate to reverse that judgment and allow this kind of opt-out action to be funded by these damages-based agreements. So we'll see if that ends up being a bit of a storm in a teacup, but has caused a lot of attention over the last uh, few months. Second area where we saw new and interesting activity was in relation to settlements. So 
the first settlement of a collective proceeding was reached just this month in relation to the Roro cartel. So this was a bilateral settlement between one of the defendant cartelists, a Chilean shipping company called CSAV, and they entered into a settlement in relation to the McLaren class action, which seeks damages on behalf of UK purchasers of vehicles, which are alleged to have cost more as a result of a cartel in the deep sea shipment of vehicles. The CAT approved that settlement quite readily, um, although there was an interesting point of law that was grappled with around the extent to which the share of liability of the settling cartelists could be fixed now or would be a matter reserved to trial. But having seen the CAT approve the first class settlement, we think that's likely to lead to uh, more of those now that there is a roadmap through that process. And then the third significant development was in relation to the use of opt-out class actions, where the CAT retains a discretion to decide whether class actions should proceed on an opt-in or an opt-out basis. And the CAT overturned, the Court of Appeal, sorry, overturned the CAT in relation to the FX uh, cartel, where the CAT had said it should proceed as an opt-in class action, and the Court of Appeal overturned the CAT on that point. And so that's obviously an important point of law because it's really the opt-out nature of a class action, thus widening the pool of victims caught by the claim and therefore the pot of damages that is really driving law firm and funder interest in pursuing these cases. So a considerable amount of interesting case law in class actions and competition litigation more generally in 2023. And looking ahead to 2024, I think a number of interesting and important developments are on the horizon. First, there was a trial this year over four weeks in the commercial court in relation to Granville's claim against LG Display for damages arising out of the LCD cartel. And that judgment will come, we think, early in the new year. And that will be only the third English court judgment ruling on damages in a cartel follow-on claim after Britned and Trucks won. And so that, again, will provide more guidance on how the courts are approaching issues around volume of commerce, overcharge, passing on defence and interest. We also have a hearing in April in the Citalopram pay-for-delay case, where there will be a three-day hearing on limitation. And that is expected to provide further guidance on how to deal with limitation in cartel damages claims. And that's quite an interesting area in the UK because we're seeing some divergence between the UK and the EU. In the UK, since the Gemalto case and the FII case in the Supreme Court, we see limitation starting to run earlier, while at the same time in Europe, with the trucks rulings in Volvo, we see time running later. And so seeing how the CAT grapples with the limitation issues there will be an important marker in how the courts are treating that issue. And then perhaps most significantly, we have the DMCC, so the Digital Markets Act. And there, there's a suggestion that they might, in fact, extend the scope of consumer class actions to include not only competition violations, but consumer law violations. So a lot to look out for in 2024. So let's go to China now. Chun Zhenhuang, when you look back at 2023, tell us what are the main events you identify and what are you looking forward to in 2024? 
as we predicted in our podcast one year ago, 2023 witnessed a quiet year in China with regard to techlash. It remains to be seen whether the techlash has come to an end in China or it is merely a pause due to the economic downturn. Conduct enforcement in China continue to focus on pharmaceuticals and the local providers of public utilities. Some cartel decisions involve construction materials. These are all very classic industries for conduct-related antitrust enforcement in China. Let's now turn to merger control review. As of early December this year, SMR has received more than 700 filings. The average acceptance duration is 23.6 days, and the average review duration is 24 days. That indeed looks good, but it covers the majority of being simplified procedure cases transactions. However, the merger control review process for high-profile transactions continues to be very lengthy. The average review time for conditional approvals in 2023 is more than 11 months, from the initial filing to clearance. The new anti-monopoly law introduced a stop-the-clock mechanism. Maxilinear silicon motion is the first published decision where SMA expressly admitted that its review clock had been suspended. It was suspended for more than six months. Traditionally, if the review clock ran out, but SMR has not yet reached a decision, it routinely required the parties to put and refile, restarting the clock from day one. However, since introduction of stop-the-clock mechanism last year, SMR has informally said there may be no more point and refile in the future. We expect going forward, it may be more routine for the clock to be stopped at least during the remedy negotiation period. On the substance review of mergers, SMR continue to consider political and industrial factors, particularly involving industries of strategic importance to China, such as semiconductors. Among four conditional approvals issued by SMR in 2023, two of them involve semiconductor companies, Vaxlinear Silicon Motion and Broken VMware, with the latter not really being a semiconductor deal, but a software deal. Another two are pure domestic transactions, one of which was the first under the threshold's voluntary filing that received a conditional approval. Max Linear Silicon Motion decision is fairly interesting. SMR's public decision did not identify any horizontal, vertical, or conglomerate relationships between the parties. However, SMR still raised concerns about Silicon Motion's strong market position in non-flash controller chip market, which is not a merger-specific market, and SMR imposed behavior remedies with a view to ensuring supply security for Chinese customers. SMR has also recently published, uh, publicly emphasized the importance of complying with restrictive conditions it has imposed, despite the current geopolitical situation, especially the strengthened U.S. export control rules. While SMR recognizes that these export control rules have imposed limitations on U.S. companies' ability to invest in or sell to China, and which in turn affects their ability to comply with their commitments made to SMR. SMR still made it very clear that changes in U.S. government policies or rules cannot be used as a defense for non-compliance with SMR conditions. It remains to be seen whether SMR would change its stance depending on whether U.S.-China tensions would be escalated or de-escalated. On the rulemaking front, SMR is actively engaged in the development of series of new antitrust guidelines, including on horizontal merger review and penalties for gun jumping and non-compliance with merger remedies. The Office of Anti-Monopoly Committee of the State Council 
recently introduced a new mechanism that codifies the current investigative procedure steps against antitrust violation. It is called one letter and three notices. One letter refers to reminder and urging letter, and three notices refer to first interview notice, second investigation case initiation notice, and third administrative penalty notice. The judicial um, branch remained to be busy too. In 2023, the Supreme Court has been focusing on strengthening antitrust judicial efforts in key sectors such as platform economy, core technologies, pharmaceuticals, and telecommunications. At its press conferences for the Supreme Court stated it will timely introduce the new judicial interpretations on anti-monopoly civil litigation. IPSEP cases continue to be a focus in China's antitrust litigations, a number of which made into annual typical cases. In standard essential patents litigation case Nokia Opel, Opel and Nokia litigated in multiple courts globally regarding the license fee of Nokia's SEPs. The judgment from the Chinese local court set SEP royalties on a global scale with different royalty rates for three different geographies allegedly based on region's economic development. Now, with 2024 on the horizon, the most anticipated change in the coming year must be the revisions to China's merger control thresholds. The revisions have been long awaited. The draft version has increased revenue-based thresholds and an additional threshold based on market capitalization intended to capture killer acquisitions of Chinese startups. Another area to watch out for is whether SMR will make more use of its authority to call in non-report bomb transactions more often. Thanks very much, Chunzen. So let's move to the United States. And first up to talk about merger control, Brian Byrne. Brian, as you look back on last year, what are the major events you'd single out and what are you looking forward to in 2024? Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. First, three developments from 2023. First, there's one development that's really been driving everything, which is the U.S. agencies have been more aggressive overall. A good example of this is the lawsuits that the agencies have filed with respect to non-horizontal competition theories, including Amgen Horizon, which was a conglomerate case, Meta Within, which was a potential competition case, and Microsoft Activision, a vertical case. The second key development is the response to that, which is that the parties are fighting back in court and often winning. Ryan Shores will mention a couple of specific issues coming out of these cases. I just wanted to flag that the overall trend remains that the agencies have continued to encounter challenges in these cases in court. In 2023, the agency lawsuits were dismissed in the Microsoft case, the Meta Within case, and the Altria Jewel case. The agency appeals of losses were denied or not sought in the U.S. Sugar case and United Healthcare change. And litigation settled on very favorable terms to the parties in both Asset Abloy and Amgen. To be fair, DOJ did win the American JetBlue case, but that wasn't actually a merger, and the FTC did, did win a number of points in the Illumina Grail Fifth Circuit appeal that just came out, though the commission's decision was itself reversed and remanded. The third development I wanted to flag is that deal negotiations are shifting to reflect this changing environment. To be sure, deals with issues are still getting signed and still getting done in many cases, but there are some longer long stop dates of up to 18 to 24 months in large part to provide time for US litigation, also to provide for the global nature of reviews and express commitments are to litigate are more and more common. There are also often more and larger reverse termination fees and some more specifically tailored divestiture commitments, including caps. 
there seems to be a recognition that hell or high waters aren't a great bargain for anyone as they seem to be a bit dangerous for the buyers and insufficient for the seller, given in particular the DOJ's skepticism of, of remedies. With respect to 2024, there are three particular developments I wanted to flag. First, just to continue the theme, there's going to continue to be more merger litigation. I won't say much more on that, but the agencies are likely to keep filing cases and more and more companies are coming into the merger review process prepared to litigate if necessary. Second, a revised HSR form will likely be, be implemented in 2024. It could be the most significant U.S. merger review process change since the HSR was implemented nearly 50 years ago. The initial agency proposal looked highly onerous and wasteful, but we've done a lot of second requests, so we're accustomed to waste and so on. The real change will be with respect to the timeline. If it effectively shifts the U.S. timeline to more of an EU-style timeline with a massive initial notification and parties permitted to file only after months of pre-notification and an agency green light, that would be a fundamentally different system than we've had for the last 50 years. This could also importantly impact the 90 plus percent of HSR filings that are for deals that have plainly no antitrust issues at all. The agencies have already been willing to burden such deals by abolishing early termination. They may burden them further with this. Third and finally, of course, we have to talk about the election. We won't say much about it other than the antitrust impact, of course. Uh, first, if the Democrats win, there could be very little change. You never know, but presumably there will be little change. If Republican wins, it could be a wild card. And that will likely depend upon exactly who the people are that are selected for the jobs. Broadly speaking, you could see it going one of two ways. First, kind of continued aggression, perhaps with a little less rhetoric and a little more anchored in existing case law and economics. After all, the, the data makes clear that the FTC was challenging more mergers in the last administration than the current one. Alternatively, there's a bit of a reform scenario involving an expressed desire to pull back from the perceived excesses of the current administration. This would be fundamentally different than we saw what we saw in 2017 when Trump came into office. Prior to that, Obama's agencies were largely viewed as aggressive, but operating within a bipartisan consensus. And that, that's not the case today. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with the election. Uh, Thanks, Brian. I'd like also to focus on cartels and conduct in the U.S. And here to look back on the last year and look forward to the next, Jeremy Calcine. 2023 involved another busy year for the Justice Department in continuing its aggressive efforts to attempt to investigate and prosecute cartel violations. It entered two guilty plea agreements in the generic drug cases with Teva for $225 million and Glenmark for $30 million. But there were some significant setbacks for the Justice Department as well. First, uh, the DOJ lost its third consecutive jury trial related to labor, tri labor side antitrust issues. In the Manahe case, the Justice Department presented evidence of discussions between competitors about refraining from hiring each other's employees and exchanging information about wage levels. The defendants in this case even drafted an agreement related to these hiring uh, issues. In defense, uh, the, the counsel presented evidence that these defendants, who are all immigrants from Iraq, uh, culturally could never actually agree to a bind, enter a binding agreement unless there was a signed written agreement. And because there was the agreement that was drafted was never signed, there was no agreement that would violate Section 1 of the Sherman Act. After hearing all this evidence, the jury acquitted the defendants. The second uh, major case uh, is the U.S. versus Patel. This case involved aerospace engineers and outsourced labor companies. 
At the close of the prosecution's case, the defendants, before, prose- per- before presenting any evidence of their own, moved for acquittal under Rule 29. Uh, Rule 29 uh, motions are common, but it's very rare that they are granted because the court uh, usually wants to allow the jury to hear uh, all of the evidence and let the jury decide. But here the court granted it, holding that the alleged no-poach agreement that the DOJ presented did not restrict competition in a quote-unquote meaningful extent and declined to apply the per se uh, rule to this to what the, uh, the to the conduct this is a very important ruling uh, because it's not appealable and it shows an uphill battle the government faces when trying to produce prove these labor related cases doj has said that it's regrouping and it plans to review how it's trying these cases but they are committed to continuing to cr- criminally prosecute or attempt to criminally prosecute labor related cases and the future. So we'll see what 2024 holds. Turning to a non-labor related case, the Fourth Circuit at the end of 2023 issued a very interesting and important ruling in U.S. versus Brubaker. Here, the defendant was convicted at trial of a per se antitrust violation, along with five counts of mail fraud and wire fraud. Brubaker was sentenced to 18 months in prison, and he's served that time. On appeal here, though, uh, the facts are that Brubaker worked for a company that was involved in selling uh, and installing aluminum structures to prevent flooding, and the customer was the Department of Transportation for the state of North Carolina. There was a bidding process here, and there were three bidders typically for this this business. One was Contact, which was Brubaker's company, and another was Pomona. In situations where Pomona won the bid, it would typically or often supply aluminum products from Contact. When Contact would win the bid, it would supply the aluminum pro- uh, products and then it would subcontract Pomona to do the installations. In 2009, Brubaker uh, saw an opportunity and according to the evidence, uh, started asking Pomona for its total bid price rather than just the services price when it was submitting the bid. Then Brubaker would add a percentage to that price and make sure and, and submit the bid ensuring that Pomona would win uh, these bids for the, for the installation and, and supply services. Um, and then Contact would end up supplying the, the, the aluminum uh, products that would be installed. The Fourth Circuit held uh, that the district court erred by applying the per se rule because the district court did not consider that there was a vertical relationship between Brubaker's company and Pomona Instead, they focused only on the horizontal uh, relationship between the companies. Uh, the Fourth Circuit did affirm the mail and wire fraud convictions. But this is a really important case because if it stands up, I think the defendants will have another have an argument here that the per se rule should not apply. And there's any aspect of the relationship between co- alleged co-conspirators that's vertical. Now, it's unclear whether the DOJ is going to seek further review of the decision. But I think this case uh, you know, will have a big impact if it stands and if other, other courts and other uh, circuits adopt it. We'll see what 2024 holds. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jeremy. And finally, in the US litigation, a veteran of the US litigation scene, Ryan Shores. Ryan, what have been the major events in 2023 and what are you looking forward to in 2024? Yeah, thanks a lot, Nick. 
There's a lot that's happened in 2023. I'll mention a few developments. First, as Brian Byrne alluded to, merger litigation continues to be quite robust in the United States. And in particular, we've seen important legal developments on the question of remedies proposed by the parties. Now, in the past, at least some of these remedies would have been agreed to by the antitrust agencies, but now the agencies are litigating rather than settling. And what that means is that courts are deciding whether the remedies are enough. And a critical question in the cases has become, does a proposed remedy have to completely resolve the competitive concern, as the government has argued? So far, the courts have rejected the government's high standard, relying on statutory language that only mergers substantially lessening competition are barred. In early 2023, DOJ dropped its appeal to a district court decision allowing the merger of United Health and Change Healthcare. In that case, the district court held that the defendants did not need to prove the divestiture remedy at issue in that case would preserve exactly the same level of competition that existed pre-merger. And just last week, an appellate court addressed the same issue in ruling on the Illumina Grail merger where the parties had made a what they called an open offer to cure vertical foreclosure concerns. And the appellate court, similarly in that case, held defendants have no obligation to show this remedy would restore the pre-merger level of competition or negate the anti-competitive effects of the merger entirely. Assuming this trend in the law continues, this standard on remedies will make it easier for defendants to defeat merger challenges, which again are likely to continue. On the private litigation side, 2023 saw some very large antitrust verdicts awarding massive damages and calling into question the way certain businesses operate. For example, a jury in Missouri recently found a National Realtors Association and two brokerage firms were liable for $1.8 billion in damages for conspiring to keep commissions from home sales artificially high. And ultimately, this is going to require a change in the way realtors are compensated. At the highest level, this demonstrates the continued powerful role of private litigation in the United States. And third, I just mentioned in terms of criminal litigation, DOJ continued to lose the criminal no-poach cases that it has brought, making four cases in total where there were acquittals after trial. And in November, DOJ voluntarily dismissed its remaining criminal no-poach case. And at this point, it's unclear if DOJ is going to continue to pursue no-poach cases criminally. In terms of looking ahead to 2024, first, as Brian alluded to, we're going to see more merger litigation. One looming question is what deference, if any, are courts going to give the FTC and DOJ merger guidelines given the changes that were just released yesterday. Some of these changes go well beyond where the case law in the United States is in several areas. Today, courts have considered the guidelines as a tool while making clear they are not binding. But now courts may say that this is just a prosecution document and not a balanced guide on how to interpret the antitrust laws, so not give them any weight. Um, to be sure, it isn't clear that this particular set of guidelines will survive if a Republican wins, as they're not generally viewed as reflecting a consensus like past guidelines. But we'll just have to wait and see what the election holds. One other development in 2024 that we're looking forward to is likely interesting litigation over the FTC's rulemaking authority. In April, the FTC is expected to vote in favor of its broad ban on non-compete agreements 
in the employment context using its rulemaking authority. And already there's court challenges being prepared to test whether the FTC has rulemaking authority, substantive authority under its unfair methods of competition power. Also, whether the FTC's rule violates what's called the major question doctrine. And third, whether the FTC's rule constitutes an impermissible delegation of legislative authority under what's called the non-delegation doctrine. And in general, this litigation will be an important test case for the FTC's authority to issue competition rules that ex ante address corporate conduct in the United States. So those are some things we're looking forward to in 2024. So thank you, Cleary panelists. What a fascinating year it's been. 2023 has had a raft of extraordinarily interesting cases and developments in our world. It's hard to single out the most important. I'm going to cheat a little by choosing five. I think you have to begin with Microsoft Activision, an extraordinary saga packed with excitement and surprise worthy of the video games that were at the center of the case. It saw another setback for the FTC, the CMA prohibiting the transaction and then approving it following its renotification and a possible softening of the CMA's historic aversion to behavioral relief. So looking forward to 2024, it's going to be fascinating to see whether the Microsoft case represents a watershed in the evolution of merger control in the UK, or whether the interventionist approach of Sarah Cardell's predecessor, Andrea Caccelli, is maintained, and it was something of an aberration. Second case I'd single out is Illumina Grail, although the case, three cases, are under appeal to the European courts. The general court's judgment confirming the commission's Article 22 policy and creating the possibility for member states to refer transactions to the European Commission that don't meet their own thresholds represents a very significant event in the evolution of merger control and the distribution of powers between the European Commission and the national authorities. The prohibition of the transaction on the basis of a vertical theory of harm, the first occasion on which the Commission has relied on a vertical theory alone to prohibit a deal, confirms a tightening of policy towards pharma and digital sector transactions. And of course, the eye-watering, gun-jumping fine shows that companies have to think very seriously in circumstances where they're contemplating closing a deal before they get regulatory approval. Third case I'd single out is the Booking e Travelli case. Another case that's under appeal to the European courts. First case in which the European Commission has advanced an ecosystem theory of harm. It was a conglomerate merger. The Commission didn't apply the typical foreclosure theory uh, that conglomerate effects cases have historically applied, but challenged the transaction on the basis of a creational strengthening of a dominance test. And this was a transaction that the CMA had approved, so that the narrative that the CMA is necessarily more interventionist than the um, European Commission. This is a corrective to that narrative. It's going to be extremely interesting to see what the European courts do uh, with this case. The fourth thing I'd single out are the FTC and the DOJ. As you've heard, they've had a checkered year in terms of their track record before the courts in the US. The agency heads continue to be vigorous. They're trying to recast the guidelines. They're trying to change Hartscott Rodino. Very much watch this space. I think the most significant event, perhaps, 
in global enforcement next year could be the identity of the European Commissioner who replaces Commissioner Bastea and whether President Biden is re-elected or not. And finally, big tech and the introduction of regulatory regimes around the world, starting, of course, in Brussels and now spreading across the globe, not only transforming the environment in which big tech companies operate, but also transforming the practice of antitrust law as a regulatory aspect is bolted on uh, to the to the areas that antitrust lawyers have typically been focused on to add to FDI, to add to foreign subsidies. So it's been a fascinating year in antitrust, a raft of interesting cases decided by courts across the world, important decisions by the European Commission, the CMA, the US agencies and others, introduction of regulatory control, new FDI regime, new foreign subsidies regime, Incredible amount to look forward to in 2024, including the resolution of the, some of the uh, cases that we've been talking about, Illumina Grail, Booking E. Travelli, perhaps. It'd be very interesting to see who the new heads of the U.S. agencies are, particularly in the event of a new administration. And of course, the replacement Commissioner Bastaire after an historic two terms. Big tech, I think, is going to continue to be the big story not only in the way in which agencies treat mergers involving the big tech companies, but also in the regulation of uh, the leading digital platforms in the world. So I'd like to thank Grant Bather at Rostrum and Simon Sedum at Cleary Gottlieb for all their help in putting these podcasts together.